Who is Jesus? That is the question uh, that we have been wrestling with, the one that we'll continue to wrestle with all the way up to Easter. And it is the most important question that you will ever ask yourself, not just is the, the reality of who Jesus is to the world, but who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to me? What I love so much about the way that God moves in our lives is that he did not just leave us to try to wrestle with this and figure this out on our own, but he's been moving for centuries that we might have clarity around the identity of Jesus, of who he is, of what he's come to do, what he continues to do in our lives. And so he's been moving through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's been moving through the body of Christ and he's been giving us a clear picture through his word, from Genesis to Revelation, giving us an understanding of who is the Son of God, this Messiah, this one who comes into the world to save, this man named Jesus. And we've been reflecting on this truth that Jesus is in all of Scripture. He's in the Old Testament concealed, meaning that, that all the stories and all of the law is pointing to who Jesus is and what he is coming to do through metaphors, through imagery, sometimes through prophecy, of pointing ahead to Jesus. And then the New Testament is Jesus revealed, is bringing it out into the light of day, of Jesus coming among us, Emmanuel, being born to show us the face of God, to give us the voice of God, to explain to us the ways of God, and to do for us what we could not do. To have a holy life, a holy offering, to God and to free us from sin and death. And we reflect on these events and this life as we come to submit ourselves to the only one who could save us. Who is this man, Jesus? Most important question we'll ever ask. But here's what I want us to think about this morning is that all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation and not only that, but all of history From the beginning of creation to today until Jesus comes again, it is all converging on the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. All of history pointing to him, making sense through him. It is all pointing to him, but here's what I want us to think about. Do my thoughts, do my feelings, does my life point to him? Because the way I think about and feel about Jesus will either draw me to him or push me away from him. And so what I really want us to think about through the, today and the rest of the series is does the way that I think about and feel about Jesus match up with what God has revealed to me about Jesus? Because what God has revealed to us about Jesus is intended to draw us into him, that we might be saved, that we might experience the power and the love and the freedom of God. And this is no more important than I think than what we're going to talk about today. The title of our message is The Snake Crusher. Uh, We're going to be talking about spiritual warfare the powers of evil and good. And I think sometimes for us as Christians, perhaps our thoughts around this are more shaped by culture and movies and books than it is the revelation of God and his word. And so what I want us to do today is get at least one part of the picture of what Jesus does and who he is when it comes to this power over evil with good. And not just good, 
but the good, our Lord and Savior. So let's dive in. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to see the appearance of a snake, of a serpent, and we're going to see the promise of God that a snake crusher is coming. Now let me set the story up just a little bit. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything in how many days? Six days. He rests on the seventh. Uh, Adam and Eve are the culmination of his creation. And he, he creates Adam and Eve for two purposes. For relationship and to join with God in caring for his creation. That they're made for relationship, not only with one another, but relationship with God. That they walk with God and they talk with him and they're intimately connected with their creator. And then God gives them instructions to be fruitful and multiply and oversee this creation to join with God and caring for it and stewarding what God has made. And everything is going great. They're walking with God. They're living with God. They're following God's lead. They're doing what God has called them to do until a serpent, a snake, appears and starts to call into question not only what God has said, but really who God is. And the temptation that comes before Adam and Eve is, did God really say? Now, this, this thought that maybe, just maybe, God is holding out on you. Now, let's take a step aside and let's talk about this serpent. Who is this serpent? Now, throughout most of church history, uh, we have believed and held to the truth that the serpent is somehow tied to perhaps a manifestation of Satan, meaning the accuser. Now, who is Satan? Satan appears throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, uh, sometimes more prominently in places like Isaiah or the Gospels or the, lighter, the, the, the epistles of Paul. Talking about this evil one who's come to, to destroy and to bring death and to bring deception and division. Well, this serpent, this uh, Hasatan, the, the Satan, the accuser, the liar, the deceiver, the father of lies, Jesus calls him, has come into the world created by God. And he was created by God to serve in God's courts, to serve God's purposes, but out of pride, perhaps, out of wanting to be like God, just like he tempts Eve, telling her that she will be like God. He rises up and opposes his creator to try to be on the same level ground with him, perhaps to usurp him and be above him. And because of that, this evil one, the accuser, the Satan, is cast out of the heavenly court. And he's cast out and God creates a fiery pit for him. That at the end of time, when Jesus comes again, that Satan and all of his demons will be cast into this fiery pit for all of eternity. Because he's risen up and he's opposed God, his creator. And scripture tells us that because sin has fallen upon the world and it has fallen upon you and I, and we are born into the power of sin, that without the intervention of God, without the work of Christ, and without faith in what he has done for us, we too will land in the fiery pit that was not created for us. It was created for Satan. But because of the work of sin in our lives and upon our lives, that's our eternal destination unless we put our trust and faith in Jesus, who's come to set us free from that destination. And so Satan has come out of hatred 
for his creator because he has fallen. And you and I get caught in the middle. We're in the crossfires. And he's coming after you and me as a way to get back at his creator. And so he comes to Adam and Eve to take them out because of his hatred for God. And he comes with a threefold temptation. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But I want us to see this because it appears throughout Scripture. Here in Genesis, it appears in the temptation of Jesus. It appears in 1 John. A threefold temptation. The first was the disordered desires of the flesh. He says, look at this fruit. And Eve sees that what? That it is good for eating. This is going to fulfill my hunger, these desires that I have of the flesh. No matter the fact that God has given me the rest of the garden and all this fruit and all the trees to eat from freely, this maybe, maybe God's just holding out and this is better. The second temptation was the disordered desires of the eyes. She saw that it looked good. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that same temptation falls upon us that that our eyes go out and we see these things that that are just out of reach that God is protecting us from. And we say, well, I I wonder how that might make me feel better. And we, we reach out for these things that appear to be good. And then the third temptation that fell upon Eve and Adam, who scripture tells us was elbow to elbow with her in the Hebrew. The third temptation comes, it was the pride of life. That I want to lift myself up, which is interesting. It was the same temptation that fell upon Satan that brought him down. But it was this pride of life that I could be like God, knowing both good and evil. And that same temptation falls upon us. That we want to make much of us. That we want to elevate ourselves, not knowing that the gospel truth is those who willingly bow down to God, who give up their life for the sake of God, are elevated by the work of God. And so she falls to these three temptations and Adam with her. And then immediately there's a fallout of three consequences as we read through Genesis 3. The first was fear. Adam and Eve immediately understanding the reality of their exposure now that they have fallen to sin. They run from God and they run from one another. And God comes looking for Adam. Where are you? And Adam says, I hid from you because I was afraid. The second consequence, the fallout from sin that fell upon Adam and Eve and fall upon you and I is fear, number one. Number two is shame. They immediately covered themselves with fig leaves. An interesting part of the story as we fast forward is that the first sacrifice for sin appears here in Genesis as God takes animal skin and covers their shame. And this is the necessity of the blood of Christ to cover our sin and our shame. That's atonement. It's a covering of our brokenness, our separation from God. And God enters the picture here with the first sacrifice in Genesis 3. But that shame falls upon us all. And then number three was blame. Adam, what did you do? It was Eve. right? Eve, what did you do? It was the serpent. And so God comes in. And this fallout, this brokenness enters the world. But it's not just that, but God brings not just natural consequences, but an enforced consequence on this sinful behavior as well. And that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Look at what happens. So the Lord God said to the serpent, the snake, 
Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will do what? Say it with me. Crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here's the promise of the snake crusher to come. Now God brings some consequences upon sin. We see the natural consequences of fear, shame, and blame, but there's a curse that befalls him as well here on the serpent. Next few verses lay out the curses upon Adam and Eve. Real quickly, Adam will now toil and work the ground with pain to eat and, and to provide for his family and for his life. And that continues today as we work and we work and we work and toil with frustration and pain and never really getting to the point of fulfillment that we're looking for through these earthly things. And he says to Eve, and now you will have pain in childbirth and you will want to be one with your husband, but he will rule over you. And we continue to see this in our lives as, as God has created us in his image to bear life, to bring life into his creation. And now it comes with a pain and a heartache and our relationships are fractured and broken and where we want to have intimacy and vulnerability and oneness with one another, we experience brokenness and we experience the fear and the shame and the blame. We experience distance and suspicion and these power struggles between one another. This is a fallout of sin. But then specifically the curse upon the serpent who we've said is tied to the Satan. The accuser, the father of lies, the one who comes to kill, kill and steal and destroy. And what's the curse upon him? Well, he says, number one, cursed are you above all livestock and all, all wild animals. The one who was crafty is now cursed. And he goes on, and you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I want you to see this reversal that God is bringing, that this Satan who wanted to be elevated, who wanted to rise above is now being brought down. The one who wanted to be lifted up to the heights is now humiliated as he crawls on the ground and eats of the dust. This final uh, judgment that God is bringing on him is coming. And he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring. That word there is seed. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Her offspring, and yours and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, this word seed or offspring is a collective noun, meaning it's not just one, but it's many. Meaning that, that what's going to happen is a lifelong battle for generations to come. That you and I, you may not have understood this when you were brought into the world, when you were born and when you were beginning to grow up and you developed your own autonomy and your own direction for your life. You may not even re realize it fully today that you have stepped into a battle. You have stepped into a war that there's enmity between you and the evil one, the Satan who wants to come to kill and steal and destroy. You've stepped into a battle. 
But ultimately, we know that this seed is leading to a specific person who comes through not only the line of David, but also through the line of Adam, through the Gospels tell us. This one who will be born into humanity, this man named Jesus. And he's going to be the fulfillment of God's promise to finally and once and for all to crush the head of the serpent. I mean, this isn't just a a bagging it up or getting rid of it or stomping on it. This is final. This is destruction, destroying it at the head. Even as the, the, the Satan attacks after Jesus, he will attack him in the wilderness. He will attack him in ministry. He will attack him in the garden of Gethsemane. He will attack and attack and attack. And he attacks us today. But we know that he is already defeated through the one who comes to crush his head. And so when Jesus arrives in the Gospels, he's coming to be a fulfillment of God's promise. A final defeat of this one who's risen up against God. And I want us to see one place in Scripture where Jesus portrays his authority over Satan, over his demons, over evil as a fulfillment of this promise. So Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. All right, this is speaking of Jesus. They brought him, meaning Jesus, brought Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now they're waiting for a Messiah who they believe will restore Jerusalem to power, God's heavenly kingdom on earth. That's what they're waiting for, this descendant of David. And that's their expectation here. Little do they know that Jesus has much bigger plans than an earthly kingdom. He's bringing a heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom to destroy Satan, to give us life, to bring glory to God forever. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, who do you, who, who, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. And then this is, this is striking. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks against a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. All right, so let's break this down. Jesus is in his ministry. He's up and going. He's been born a miraculous birth. He's been risen in favor of God and man, growing in stature. 
He's brought and, and learned from others, and he's stepped out into ministry, and he's called disciples. And last week, we began to see how he's doing incredible things like healing the sick. He does things like walk on water. Next week, we're going to talk about how he feeds the thousands. But here in this moment, in the middle of his ministry, he bestows upon those who are watching quite a spectacle where he displays once and for all what is coming, his ultimate authority over Satan. And I, I want us to, I know we realize that, we know that, but I want us to really let that sink in. Jesus has ultimate authority over Satan. This is not like Star Wars where there's dark and light and we're not sure who's going to win out at the end of the day. Victory is finished. Even before Jesus gets to the cross, it was finished. Jesus has ultimate authority over Satan and evil in the world. And so just like that, Jesus comes and he casts out the demon out of this man. Showing his power and authority. And the Pharisees come and they see what Jesus has done, but they oppose him. Now, I know it's easy for us to point a finger at the bad Pharisees and they never just got it. But let's be honest with ourselves. There are moments even in our lives as we pursue Jesus where we are puffed up with pride or our vision about our own brokenness and need for God's grace is clouded and we see Jesus not through the lens of what he has revealed to us, but we see Jesus through our own bias and what we want him to be. This was the problem of the Pharisees. They did not deny what he did. They wanted to see it through the lens of their own worldview. They wanted to see it through the lens of their own bias. They wanted to make it compute with what they wanted to be. And so they don't oppose what he did. They just try to make sense of it through what they want him to be. And they say, okay, yeah, yeah, you cast out demons, but the only way that you did this must be because you're in cohorts with Satan. You did this by the power of the prince of demons, Beelzebub. You did this on the Satan's team. And Jesus responds, he says, no. First of all, your logic is all off. Because if I'm casting out demons and it has to be by the power of Satan, then what are we going to say about those of you Pharisees and religious leaders who are casting out demons? Which leads us to assume that there was uh, casting out of demons happening among Jesus in that day. Now, I'm not sure uh, what that looked like. But some way, by the grace of God, God was working even then through the people of Israel. And there was this activity taking place. And Jesus said, if they do it by the power of Satan, or if I do it by the power of Satan, then what are you going to say about them? That's problem number one. But then he lifts up problem number two with their logic. And he says, if I'm doing this by the power of Satan, why would Satan defeat himself? Why would Satan send demons and then allow me to defeat them by the same power? Doesn't make sense. And then Jesus says, it's not just your logic that is faulty, but it's your vision that's faulty. 
So that at the end of the day, you don't see clearly what God is doing among you. You don't see clearly who I am. Because I have come by the word of God and I am the word of God. I am God with you. I am Emmanuel. God is bringing something in your midst. I I love that Jesus said, if I have come to do this by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come what? Upon you. I think that was intentional. Jesus is saying, whether you are ready or not, the kingdom of God is here. Whether you're going to receive it or not, it is here. So if you're not going to open your life to it, it's going to come upon you. I'm coming to do a new thing. And your vision is faulty. He's declaring to them that because of who he is, the son of God, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as a God in the flesh on earth, he has ultimate authority and power over Satan. The only reason that he can cast out demons is because he is the creator and redeemer, restorer and redeemer of all things. And there's no question of who's in charge. But the Pharisees don't understand. And, and they look at Jesus and they're, they're struggling and they're wrestling, trying to make sense of what Jesus is telling them. And then Jesus makes this big statement. Let me read it to you. Matthew 12. Whoever, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And ultimately what Jesus is saying is there's no middle ground here. You are with me or you're not. This is not about intellectual belief. This is not about I understand who Jesus is. Even the demons understand who Jesus is and what do they do when he shows up? They run away, they flee. This is about ultimate all in surrender and submission and trust and obedience. Whatever you say, God, the answer is yes, I am yours. Here I am, take all of me because I can't fix this mess. And at the end of the day, Jesus, I know you are Lord, you are King, you are sovereign over all things. You are creator, you are redeemer, you are restorer. And so I'm yours. That is the call of Jesus on our lives. It's it's not this halfway moderation in all things. No, it is I am sold out 100% for Jesus. And he says, you can speak against the son of man But if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, you cannot be forgiven. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, if all of us struggle at times to understand what Jesus taught, what he did, what he called us to. Paul tells it this way. He says, right now we see in a mirror dimly, but there will come a time where we see clearly. But in this life, as we continue to follow Jesus and grow, we're going to mess some things up. We're going to misunderstand some things. We're going to misinterpret God's word. We're going to struggle. And God is gracious and God is loving and God is forgiving in those places. But he says the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's look at the role of the Holy Spirit. 
John tells us the role of the Holy Spirit through the words of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes, number one, to convict us of our sin, that we have to recognize that we are sinners, that we do not meet the mark of God, that we are broken, that we are ultimately in need of what Jesus does, not what we do. We don't meet the mark. We're broken and sinners. The Holy Spirit, number two, comes to point to the reality of who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Savior, that He is Creator, that He is the Trinitarian God. He is God in the flesh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Son has come to us to usher in the kingdom of God. And the Holy Spirit reveals to us who this Jesus is, the Christ. And then the Holy Spirit works within us to submit, to trust, and follow Jesus as the Son of God. So what is Jesus saying? The one sin that we can't walk away from, that God can't forgive, is to lack faith, to not believe that I'm in need of Jesus, that Jesus is my hope, that Jesus is the Savior, and that I will follow him. Jesus, in a, in a way, is coming back to, you're either with me or you're against me. There's no middle ground here. And to show you who I am, I'm going to display my power and authority. He didn't have to, but as a gift to us, he displayed his power and authority to say, let me just let you see. And he cast the demons out, saying once and for all, this is it. And so the key for us is, am I willing to come and submit and trust and believe and follow Jesus as the one who has ultimate power and authority over evil, over creation, over my life, over all things, because he is creator, he is restorer, he is redeemer, he is savior. He's the one who came to do for me and you what we could not do, that he came and he took sin and he took brokenness and he took evil and he bore it in his body and he died on the cross so that when he went to the tomb, he took sin and death with him. And when he rose again, he destroyed it forever. Amen. Ultimate power and authority. Are we going to submit to him? Are we going to trust in him? That means that we don't fear the evil and the brokenness in the world. It means that we don't back down when it confronts us and we don't, we don't compromise in what God has called us to do. Because we trust that Jesus has got it covered. And I'm all in with him. So what does that mean for us in a practical way? I'm going to walk us through three things that I think are important for us. Just some, some things we can work on as, as we try to submit our lives to Jesus. But I want to come back to this point first that I made at the beginning. May our theology of who Jesus is and evil in the world be directed by God's word and not some movie or book or culture around us. I think for many of us, our understanding of this battle between good and evil is more driven by a movie like Exorcist than it is by the word of God. And so may we understand just how Jesus has come to save and work. Number one, he has ultimate authority over this. Number two is we need to understand that this is real. This is not something, you know, the, the greatest lie of Satan is for us to believe that he doesn't exist. This is real life. This happens. But number three, I want us to understand that Jesus does have ultimate power and authority. And at his presence, they flee. 
And as I look through scripture, I cannot find even one instance where a spirit-filled believer is possessed by a demon or powers of Satan. I want us to understand that. We definitely will face attack. We will face oppression. We will face opposition. But the power of evil can never stand up to the presence of God. If you are a spirit-filled follower of Jesus, your fate is sealed in his love and power as we submit to him, as we trust in him, and you are, you are a child of God. And Christ reigns in your life. And we don't have to fear. We don't have to back down. We don't have to compromise. All right, but what does that look like? All right, three things. Number one, there is power in the name of Jesus. There's power in his name. As we face opposition, as we face attack, as Satan comes at us, call out to the name of Jesus because there's power in that name. Now, why is there such power in the name of Jesus? Because Jesus literally is the word of God. And what does the word of God do? It brings all things into being. In other words, Jesus is the whole of God's presence. He is the whole of God's power. He is the whole of God's saving works in our lives. And as we call out the name of Jesus, we're calling out upon all the power and all the love and all the presence of God. And at that name, demons and Satan, they flee. And we call out to him in faith and trust that we don't try to fix this on our own. We don't try to find another way. We don't try to ignore it. We don't try to explain it away. That when we face opposition and there are things that happen. Now listen, not everything in the world is Satan coming after you. Right? Like sometimes you get a flat tire because you didn't change your tires out. It wasn't Satan coming after you. But sometimes the these things are real and they happen. And we, we can experience discouragement. We can experience division. We can experience a deep depression at times. Uh, I think there can be physical manifestations. And when we seek out wisdom, we, you know, we seek out medical help and we seek out counseling and we seek out those things, but we're always aware of what could be. And asking for discernment, Lord, Holy Spirit, give me discernment in what I'm walking through right now. And when we face opposition, we call out to Jesus. But here's the key with this. It's our second point. Is that power over evil cannot be reduced to a formula. This is not about you understanding some weapon to manipulate at your own hands. Perfect example of this. I want you to go this week and read Acts chapter 19. And there's a story of the seven sons of some guy named Siva. And it says that these seven sons are going out and they're trying to cast out demons. And they believe that this is a formula, that if I just use the right method, if I use the right strategy, and I use this magic word named Jesus, then I get to manipulate the powers for my own advancement. I can make money. I can have people look at me favorably. I can have power. And I'm going to use this to my advantage. And they come at these demons and they say, get out of here in the name of Jesus. And what was their response? I know Jesus. I even know Paul. But I don't know you. And they attack and they come upon them and they leave worse off than they were before. This is not a formula. 
and where it hits us much of the time as followers of Jesus as we have more faith in our faith than we do faith in Jesus. This is not about us believing the right thing or behaving the right way or thinking that we're some super spiritual person, that this is about falling on complete dependence and submission to Christ and say, Jesus, it is at your presence that they flee, not by my word. And so I take this seriously. It means number one is that we don't treat this flippantly. This is real. But number two is that we don't get arrogant. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And we're cautious and careful. But understand this final point is that this power over evil, this destruction, this defeat of evil is final. It's final. He crushes the head. It's a final defeat. When Jesus came, to live a perfect life and to point us to the kingdom of God and to come and do for us what he could, we could not do. Jesus came and he gave his life. He battled one last time with Satan as Satan tried to discourage him, to try to make him to find another way. He got, Jesus went to the Lord in prayer and he said, God, I need your help. If there's any other way, God, I, I, let's do it that way. But then he came back around and he said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And then Jesus gave up his life. He was arrested. He was beaten. He died a criminal's death on the cross. And this is significant. When he died and he went to the tomb, because he had bore our sin in his body, he took that with him to the grave. So that when Jesus experienced death, he brought death to death. He brought death to sin. He brought death to evil and he destroyed it. And then he rose as he said he would do and he initiated new life, resurrection life. And scripture tells us in the book of Revelation that at the end of time, Jesus will come again and he will restore all things. And believers will be risen those who put their trust in Jesus will rise from the dead and we will come into God's presence. And Satan and all of his army of demons will be cast into the fiery pit and it's finished. And what were the, the words of Jesus as he died on the cross? His last two poignant, significant words, or three, last three words. It is finished. It is done. And that's always been the case. It's, it's interesting to me that Satan has to employ an army of demons. And even with that, all he can do is he can whisper those lies to us. He can try to divide us. He can try to distract us. He can try to intervene in our world. But he's limited because he's a part of creation. He's limited by what he can do in time and space. And he uses all these demons and here comes Jesus and he reigns on high and he sends the Holy Spirit and that Spirit of God is in all times, in all places, in all things. He is sovereign over all without limit or boundary. And the defeat is certain, God wins. So I don't want us to take this flippantly. I don't want us to be arrogant, but cautiously and carefully we keep our eyes on Jesus. 
We call out to the name of Jesus. We submit to him. And we don't do this alone. We need one another. And this is not just a practical thing. This is a theological thing. Jesus tells us, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. That we are meant as the body of Christ to be the embodiment of Christ in the world. And at the presence, the embodiment of Christ, evil flees. It runs away. That's the importance of this thing called the church. We are the embodiment of Christ that overcomes evil once and for all through Jesus, through the power of the Spirit in us. So my call upon us, church, is to understand this reality, but to not fear it, to not back down, to not compromise, but together we keep our eyes on Jesus. We submit by faith and trust in Him. We continue to look to Him and call out upon Him and know that He's coming again. And we respond as he responds with love and compassion, but also with authority. Not our authority, but his authority. We call out to the authority of Jesus and say, Lord, you do what only you can do. Now, I don't know who's watching or who is here today. You might be under spiritual attack. You, there might be some things going on in your world. I pray for us to have discernment around earthly things and spiritual things. I pray for us to have a certainty around the authority of Christ, that he has ultimate authority. I pray for us to be uh, one with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have not submitted your life to Jesus in faith, that Lord, I not only believe in you, but I trust that you are my savior and I will submit my life to you in obedience. I'm gonna follow you. I pray that today's the day that you do that that you are sealed off from the power of evil by becoming one with Christ in faith. And I pray, Lord, that we will bond together, that we will encourage one another and work together toward evil in the world. It is real. Let's have vision and discernment about it. Let's treat it carefully, but know that Jesus wins. So as we close out with one final song, this, these prayer altars are gonna be open. And if you've got some stuff going on in your life or you've got some stuff going on in the life of somebody that you know and love, I pray that you will come and lay that down at the authority of Christ and say, Lord Jesus, you have overcome this and I put my faith in you. If you'd like one of us to pray with you, just wave us on over. We'd love to do that as well. But let's come and let's bow before the one who is the snake crusher once and for all. If you'll stand, I'm gonna pray for us. And then we'll close out as we sing one more time in worship to God. Father, we love you and we praise you. We celebrate who you are. Thank you that you defeat evil. You defeat sin and you defeat death forever. You place eternity in our hearts that we would long for you, God. Thank you that all history and all scripture points to Jesus and what he's done. God, I pray for those of us who have submitted to Christ and we're following you and we're engaged in the mission with the Holy Spirit as we come under opposition, as we come under attack from the evil one, that we would not fear, we will not back down and we will not compromise because we know they are defeated at the name of Jesus and we stand with you in faith. We are filled with your Holy Spirit. We are holy called to be saints in this world, called the kingdom of priests to usher in your kingdom and join with you, Lord. And we stand on that. We stand on your promises and your word. 
I pray for us to have encouragement and protection, to us to have boldness and faith. Lord, I pray for those of us who aren't certain about who Jesus is or where he fits in our lives, that we would have an aha moment today, that we'd be confronted by who you are. That we would be sealed off from the powers of sin and death and evil as we join with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in faith, by your grace. I pray for that to happen today. God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to come and move and do what only you can do for the glory of the Father forever and ever and ever. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.